G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker and I've got another great episode coming for you this week. This is brought to you by Rafa, our title sponsor this year, making all these episodes happen. This week we're speaking with Colin Strickland, the king of gravel, the king of Red Hook. He is a legend in his own scene. He's actually a legendary name. If you haven't heard of that name, it's maybe because he came to the cycling scene a little bit different. He grew up on a farm in Texas. He got his degree in environmental science. And as a commuter around, he sort of got picked up after doing the Alicat racing, which is fixed gear navigating racing. It's like the courier racing. You may have heard of it. We get into it in the podcast. But he got picked up there. He started doing Red Hook racing, which then led him to gravel racing. He's won all the Red Hooks. He's won Milan, Brooklyn, London, Barcelona, and then he went across to the gravel and he's dominated that. He's nicknamed the Gravel King because he's won Dirty Kansas Unbound, and he took on the best there. Our own Lockie Morton and Alex Howes put them to the sword. He's a great guy, a really good chat, and he's also working with Rafa as well. He's got to experience what I got to experience, one in EF, and now this year, and he's been able to develop some product with Rafa. Mate, so what's it been like working with Rafa? Actually, you've got to sort of help develop something a bit more than everyone out there gets to do with a company. They just get to see the finished product on the shelf. You actually got to put something on the shelf. Yes, that is correct. Uh, We've been working on the new gravel-specific jersey uh, from our friends at Rafa. Over the last year or so, it's been in development And it's been really an amazing experience and kind of a dream come true as Rafa was honestly one of the first companies that I sought out to purchase kit from because at the time I was really adamant about, you know, that wool content is an excellent aspect of a cycling kit before it's antimicrobial and it's just general, you know, being a general hippie in general, I was uh, was seeking the wool wool content in the kit and Rafa was the one offering Merino. So yeah, full circle, here we are. And I'm getting the opportunity to design not a Merino kit um, because it's designed for full full summer uh, gravel racing, but a kit nonetheless with a lot of my personal quirks and influence. Um, and it's been great that they've, they've wanted to hear what I have to say and my in, uh, input as a gravel racer who spends a lot of time racing in these things and um, you know what aspects of it I could see improved from a traditional jersey and you know whether it's storage or more sun protection in certain areas or aerodynamic fab fi, uh, fabric versus ventilating fabric in different areas and areas of the kit and yeah I'm really proud of the of the outcome and really excited to be releasing that uh I believe in a, a month or two there's a whole lot to get through in this episode. He's had a really different sort of cycling life and a view on cycling because he's been always in that world that I'm entering now. This great community around cycling, people doing it because they love it and he's touching it at the racing scene. Sit back and enjoy this one, guys. I know you will. I certainly enjoyed sitting back and talking to Colin. Could have chatted to him all day. So guys, without further ado, I bring you Colin Strickland. Here we are. We're sitting down with the known gravel king, Colin Strickland, mate. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Wish you could have got your reaction right then, mate. Welcome to the podcast, Life in the Peloton. Thank you, Mitchell. It's so good to be here. 
because before let's I want to talk a lot about gravel today because it's something that I'm getting into um, at the moment and I know everyone out there listening knows or have heard about gravel or they're going to gravel events or whatever it is people are hearing that word a lot so why not talk to the king of it about how to do gravel but before that something that I find really interesting about you and a lot of people um, would find interesting about you or maybe have not heard your name because you're pretty late to cycling um, you sort of made your name on the international scene with Red Hook Crits. And my audience now is a little bit more attuned to Red Hook because a couple of weeks ago I had Alec Briggs on who was sort of an, a Red Hook sort of star, I guess, as well, like you. Someone who came in, tried to shake up the scene as well, got involved in that scene. Um, but before that, what I want to talk about is the way that you came to cycling because you were you were riding, you were commuting, but I want you to tell me a little bit about sort of the path up to your first race. From what I understand, is about a 23-year-old was when you first sort of cut your teeth in racing and what that first race was really like. Yeah, let's see. Uh, I got into cycling as really just a uh, kind of a, a functional transportation mode. Uh, it was it was during the heyday of like the fixie culture mm. bloom in, in America. I, I'm sure it was elsewhere as well, maybe at the same time. But for us, it was about 2005 to 2010. You know, we were all listening to The Strokes, wearing skinny jeans and yeah. uh, fixing up, you know, Bianchi piece of concept <laughs> with orange wheels or something ridiculous, uh, fixed gears and uh, riding them in traffic with no brakes. Uh, somehow survived that. And um Near the end of my time at, at the University of Texas in Austin, where I grew up, um, my uh, my buddy with uh, the local fixed gear shop put on a, was hosting a, a alley cat race uh, in association with the National Handbuilt Bicycle Show, which was an uh, what's an alley cat race? An alley cat race is um, it's really a it's an there's no route. It's in an urban. It's typically in an urban area and there's just checkpoints and it's kind of a map your own route. It's a bike messenger uh, kind of format where it's it really – you ha- you almost have to know the city. Mm. It pays to know the city and it pays to be scrappy and dodgy as in traffic <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's open road racing. Uh, it doesn't have to be a fixed gear, but I decided to do it on my fixed gear because that's really the only bike I had at the time, honestly. Um yeah, and it was a it was a it was about I think forty mile race with six checkpoints around Austin, and um, yeah, you have to get a little card stamped or something uh, at each checkpoint, and uh, yeah, and I won a bicycle frame. Oh, you, you won it! Wall. You won the alley cat. I won the yeah, I won the alley cat, and you know there were a few cat one racer, you know, road racers in it and stuff uh, on road bikes, and there was also this man named David Trimble hmm. who was racing. And he approached me after the race, uh, and David uh, Trimble is the owner, founder, godfather of Red Hook. Mm. He said, Colin, you need to come race this event I put on in my little home nook of New York called Red Hook in Brooklyn. Uh, It would be right up your alley. And uh, so I think six months later, I went out there for my first one. Wow. And it was was mind-blowing, just like the scene that they were putting on in the show. It was just absolutely exhilarating right on the waterfront overlooking the statue of liberty just the coolest nook of uh brooklyn imaginable 
and well, yeah, I was I was hooked. <laughs> the thing is, like with Red Hook, and just to again explain it to the audience who are listening out there, Red Hook is a fixed gear criterium. It's on essentially a track bike is the best way to explain it. Um, where's the name Red Hook come from, actually? So Red Hook is this little neighborhood, this little region of Brooklyn, New York. It's the southern kind of waterfront. It's a it's it's really a dock community, a, a, a waterfront community of Brooklyn. Really, it's kind of the closest point uh, on the mainland or or Brooklyn to the Statue of Liberty. So it's where oh. a lot of shipyards are located, and it's. Uh, this really kind of off the beaten path little nook. It was really late to develop and gentrify. So it was always really dark and just quiet and warehouse district and really a great place for parties and like throw a bike race. When you look at New York in general, it's kind of over, you know, just a, a, a busy, busy place. But Red Hook was just this amazing little pocket. So that first Red Hook you went to there in Brooklyn, was it? Or did you go to, what was it? Was that your first Red Hook race? Correct, yes. And how did you go in that first one? Uh, I went okay. I had no really, I, I wasn't very experienced racing. So uh, yeah. I, I ended up fifth place. Um, I believe there was a guy named Dan Chabanoff, who's, he's, he's a buddy of mine now. I think this was that race. Uh, he's a good friend of mine now. He was a professional cyclocross racer for Richard Sox. Okay. And he, uh, he just rolled us like halfway through, um, rolled away. And yeah, I went, I ended up fifth, which in hindsight, I was pretty happy with, uh, not knowing my, you know, my head from my ass in the bike race. Were you thinking at this point, like, what, what is this? What is this racing? Cause was it, was it quite underground then? Or was it already actually up on that big platform? Like, well, you said a lot of sponsors crowd there, or was it still a bit the original scene of Red Hook, sort of just a lot of fixed gear sort of, commu- um, messengers riding? It was, it was like right on the cusp. It was definitely mostly, I mean, it was exclusively the kind of the fixed gear scene, but there were like the MASH guys from San Francisco. Uh, Chaz was there, Chaz Christensen, Christensen and uh, a bunch of his teammates from, you know, the heyday of MASH racing and their, mm. you know, fixie videos were there. So it was definitely a coast to coast phenomenon. But I don't recall, there might have been one or two Europeans but it was before Red Hook expanded to Europe. So it was only one event in Brooklyn at the time, 2012, 2012. Right. So I guess fast forward then to 2015, um, when you went out across to Europe and raced the Milan um, Red Hook, um, you won Milan and then you followed up with um, Brooklyn, London and Barcelona, sort of winning you know, the, the four Red Hooks. From that first red hook you did in 212, right to there, what sort of hooked you in there? Were you like, wow, I actually, I love racing. Like, this is something I really want to do. Or I know it was just something you could you could do. You, you, what was the interest? Well, 2012, the beginning of 2012 was, um, I think that's when I started racing road. So that period right. was really when I kind of dove into, you know, the local domestic road racing scene. Uh, worked my way up to this Ben Spees, the MotoGP racer, had a program that he had Eric Marcotte and Travis McCabe, mm. uh, some of the solid American road racers on called Elbows Racing, named right. after his nickname, uh, Ben Spees. So I, I eventually got on the Elbows Racing road race squad um, and really kind of just cut my teeth in the trenches, you know, the crits, the wet road races, all that nasty shit that you're so familiar with that really like <laughs> kicks your face in. Um, that you really learn the craft, you know, 
you learn the craft and that. So then I reemerged after, I guess, yeah, four years in training of that back to, or three years. Yeah. Four years back to Red Hook, having kind of the background in fixed gear and still occasionally riding the bike. So having that skill set, but then blending that with mm. the just racing savvy at that point, I would, I, I could say I was a pretty good bike racer, good at at least knowing what to do and what not to do. And, uh, uh, yeah, could just read the race better. And, you know, I had the, I guess, the complete quiver at that point. What was it like going out and doing those road racings with, like you said, Travis McCabe and these guys who are sort of, it's quite a clicky sort of feel road racing, um, not super inviting sometimes. And when a new guy comes on, I can imagine you, you'd been super annoying because you would have been really strong um, and you would have, wouldn't have really known all the stupid etiquettes of road racing and what you can and can't do you would have just sort of ignore that and race against it and you know maybe push these guys more than they wanted to and they would have to use all the tactics to beat you was that the sort of feel going out there and was it hard group to get involved with or it was maybe opposite like the american road yeah well like that road scene it, it is no matter where yeah, it man. is it is quite clicky and and you know you've got to sort of grow up in it to sort of be you know get that respect that sort of thing yeah, it definitely was. Man, my impression of it, at least in America, is just a, a bunch of like disgruntled mm. young men fighting for scraps is what I describe <laughs> it as. No one seemed to be having any fun. It was yeah. like this bummer job that everyone was just like had worked too hard to let go of. And it was like all they had. I mean, and that's not in, that's certainly not entirely true, but people weren't having a lot of fun. There wasn't a lot of smiling at <laughs> domestic road races in the mid you know teens in the in the u.s it just wasn't i don't know it just seemed desperate and angry yeah right that makes you tough but yeah i mean that's uh you're like you're thinking to yourself you're like why hang on why are we doing this again was it were we we supposed to be having fun at some point no one's making any money i mean i don't (laughs) know if they were no one was making much money some people were making more than me i made nothing um but yeah, it was just kind of like this esoteric pursuit of suffering and like it wasn't even glory. It was like just kicking each other's face yeah. in was the glory. Like, Well, take me take me back take me back to Red Hooks because explain Red Hooks a little bit for people out there listening. And, you know, I've heard you say this actually Red Hook crit racing weirdly is safer than normal sort of criterium racing or even road racing. And that is a really hard thing to sort of fathom because you're thinking, what, what, what's this guy even talking about? There's no brakes. There's no gears. Yeah. How is this actually safer? Run me through what it's actually like to race a red hook. And what sort of, like you said, we like, we just pointed out about the road. What actually attracted you more to this style of racing? Well, as with everything that on like, there's a cool trajectory, right? Mm. Things, there's a sweet spot for everything. You know, road racing might be debatable because it's it's such a enduring, you know, time-honored tradition. It's a little different. But most like, I'd say we could follow up with gravel racing in this same uh, line. But there's like this sweet spot. <laughs> Maybe it was just for me. But in the in the fixed gear criterium scene, you know, there was a, I, I don't know, it, it got it got dicier and dicier as the firepower just, just got crazy, you know, um, or maybe I just wasn't in the race. I was just off the front early because the fields weren't as deep and there wasn't as much firepower. But um, yeah, so a, so a fixed gear criterium, the course is only about two kilometers long, I think, in general. And it's kind of intentionally designed to be really sinuous with hairpin turns and just some some 
what you'd, you'd kind of think of as dangerous turns, but they, you mm -hmm. know, when you consider that your bicycle, everyone's kind of fighting to wrestle their own bicycle through the course. And that alone, it kind of creates this linear aspect similar to cyclocross where there's only one or two lines through mm -hmm. every turn with any amount of speed. So it just becomes this kind of linear race instead of this mob as in that you often get in geared criteriums and road races, like just mad dash at a, at a decisive turn. And then everybody breaks at the last second. You don't get to break at the last second. So if you carry too much speed, you will crash. It's not yeah. this like miraculous breaking and then diving into the turn in front of somebody. You will crash. So you don't get to do that. So everybody has to be more civil. And I mean, and we're all pretty experienced at that at this level. So we all know the limits of the bike. So that creates this, you know, it does create like a mutual respect because it's a mutual destruction. <laughs> That's uh, the thing, yeah, that, and that's the thing, like, what, as you can imagine, and same with road racing too, and that's the thing that I did struggle with at the end of my career in the World Tour was there is this sort of understanding of what you can and can't do in a certain race, but as the new guys keep coming in, they keep testing it, they still have having to find out the new boundaries, um, but as the older guys are there, they're like, well, we know sort of what you can and can't do here, and there's a sort of flow in the race. Was that hard when you guys sort of kept coming into Red Hook and having to learn the flow of a Red Hook? Yeah, it definitely was, especially when they're like accomplished, you know, road racers and they're powerful. So they can put their bike, in, you know, where they want to, but can they get it out of it yeah. without you know crashing you? That was always the diciness. And, <laughs> you know, um, near the end, like uh, – I was actually just rewatching a video this morning. I hadn't seen it in a long time of, of like my one of my last Barcelona races. I think I, I got crashed out this, with one lap to go from the front of the race of specialized rider who just took the hairpin turn way too hot, slammed into a wall and flipped their bike in front of me. And uh, yeah, and I lost the leader jersey, you know, but it's yeah, when you play with it's such a mayhem discipline that, yeah, eventually shit's going to go upside down. Um which is the fun of it, right? But I, I want to talk about exactly what you just said then, the specialized team, because it came because you became sort of the powerhouse of Red Hooks. You you mastered it, you know, after a while, like I said, you got those wins. You became the guy, sort of the quote of how can we beat Colin? You know, like he goes early or, you know, he he waits and then he takes these flies at two laps to go and we never see him again. So Specialized almost created this super team to sort of try and beat Colin, you know. Tell me a little bit about that. And do you think that was sort of the end of Red Hook in terms of the way that the racing then changed? It sort of turned into this team thing and it stopped this free-flowing sort of race like you were speaking about. It became a bit negative in a way. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to be too dismissive of any style of racing that doesn't suit me. Hmm. <laughs> but I would argue the same for gravel that it is bike racing is is kind of the most entertaining to watch. With road racing, I would say accepted because it is a team sport without teams. Like Red mm. Hook, just especially gravel though, you know, we can get into this again. Uh, but every rider trying to win the race is almost the simplest and most comprehensive, compre like understandable format and kind of the most fun to participate in and to watch. Where every rider, you know, you, you form alliances and enemies during the event and you form alliances you break alliances you form a group with people all of a sudden you have 
mutual interest, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you might have missed the break, you're chasing as hard as you can, or you are in the break, you're riding as hard as you can. So, you know, and that's, and then what do you, I mean, maybe a team of two is exciting to watch because there's a little bit of team mm. structure, but not over, no team is overpowering. But yeah, that becomes kind of a, a slippery slope of like, where do you draw the line? What is, what's best for the sport? What's not? So, I mean, personally, I, I would always say no teams. It also creates this like, it, so in road racing, in the American road racing, I just felt this antagonism that was just like, we all look out for each other, but they're all assholes. Like, and it creates <laughs> yeah. just this animosity of like us versus them where it's like, everybody is your buddy and everybody is your adversary is kind of, that's great. And that's kind of what we've had in gravel for the last few years. And that will change, of course. Yeah. But that's kind of the fun part is where like, we're all trying to win, no doubt, but you don't have like these factions of like us V them. Yeah. That really kind of take the camaraderie out of it. Because if you don't have any, teammates you don't have any enemies it's just you just got teammates for the instant and then the next thing you're yeah. trying to flick him because you're like you're yeah. trying to win the race like you said you yeah. need him to get across to the front once you're in yeah. the front it's all game on again you know yeah um but unfortunately the sport is a little is just catered you know in road is you have teams of eight you know it all makes sense but usually in these like sub cat sub disciplines there's teams of eight there's teams of two there's a lot of teams of one so you don't have that equity of numbers and firepower. So then it just creates this weird, yeah, it's like gang mm. fighting. I don't know. I don't want to go too deep. Tell me about, would you like to go Would you like to go back and race Red Hook again? Because, and now I want to talk a little bit about gravel just before we go there. I can see you no, shaking your head now. All right. Because what I'm, one, one thing I struggle to understand is Red Hook is just like a beast on its own, like one hour or whatever it is of, power anaerobic power and then you've got gravel which you're awesome at and you're a race everyone's familiar with unbound or dirty cancer which you won which is a nine hour race these are two ends of the spectrum i don't actually understand how you've sort of mastered both of them so that's why the question is would you like to go back to red hook the answer again absolutely not you could not pay me enough uh why 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 you've just talked so fondly of it the, I've lost the skill. I was in it. You know, I was living it. I was riding the bike. I was wearing my skinny jeans. I was listening to a lot of rock and roll. You know, it was like, it was a moment. <laughs> but I don't have the, I don't, man, you know, it's, it's a young man's game. I'm good. I'll watch it. I'll drink the beer um, and watch you young lads duke it out on these breakless suicide bikes. Uh, yeah, it's too, it's too, you know, there's a sweet spot. I hit it when you like, honestly, yeah, I'm, I'm good at bike riding, but I'm not the best. I hit things. I'm, I ride smart. <laughs> I hit this, like, I, I hit the, I hit the discipline when it's like winnable and just peaking, right? Like that's yeah. <laughs> work smart, not hard. Like shit, I hit red hook and then it got really hard to win and I couldn't win it anymore. So I went over to gravel Sure enough, won a bunch of those, and now they're really hard to win. And I might just go work on diesel trucks. Yeah. Fuck, what am I going to do? Uh, let's talk about gravel then, because now, just before we get into it, let's just talk, understand gravel here. Um, you know, how do you race a gravel race? What's the difference? You know, what are the different tactics between, say, a gravel race and road racing? Because you know, that's the most similar thing we I think you can compare it to. And we, and we can get into some tech stuff too, you know, the tires, the frames, the components, you know, clothing. This is all, it all is slightly different. I love that there's just this sort of little 
niche that's popped up in between um, everywhere. And we've created a a new little cycling discipline, more or less. Yeah. So where do we start? (laughs) Yeah. Well, with, I guess with the racing, you know, like, first of all, when you go out on in a gravel race, how do you see it different to say when people say, yeah, well, it's just essentially a road race on, you know, on dirt roads. Well, is it? Well, I, at the, at the pro level in the U S so far, we haven't really had the arrival of honestly, Lockie and and house are like the biggest pro team to, Mm. to be factored if they are racing as a team, which, you know, assume they are. It's a, so it's really been an individual sport you know pete stetna's dedicated ted king was the original kind of solo privateer gravel racer as we call them uh you know and then i showed up started doing my thing and then pete stetna and we're all again we're all kind of racing against each other and you know no friends no enemies uh so that dynamic is different yeah you're not it's it's it creates kind of a open book every you know an open plan you know there's Mm. not a lot of team strategy going on so but again, it's changing and there's no rule against teams. Some mm. races, some race directors are more frowning on it. Like Rebecca Rush is, is staunchly anti-team. I think for all the same reasons that I am looking at, she doesn't. And it's, it's really just, I mean, teams, it's, it's a, it creates a chess game where the, the, the idea, the point of having teammates is to leverage numbers to be able to put yourself in a position to sit on and not work. And then later capitalize on that saved energy. That's the only reason. That's really mm. it. I mean, get a, get get people in the move and then leverage that to not work and get up the, you know, get dig total on for, you know. And Does that actually work in gravel? I guess that's sort of another point that I'm at because I've done a few things. And although you can draft in gravel, it's not the same as drafting on the road. You know, you can actually ride people out of the wheel to a degree on gravel easier than you can on the road because there is skill involved. You know, there is absolutely. good lines. Absolutely. And the, the, the response is it absolutely matters less, yep. but if you're still skilled- exists. It still matters, and especially when you amplify it over maybe 10 hours of wind. Mm. Um, but of course, it's not everything, and it's far less significant than road. But I digress. Um, mm. So that's where American gravel for now is mostly individuals. What else? What, what were the other topic? I'm a little fuzzy. Um, yeah, the, the other- no, we, we're just talking the tactics too, you know, like and uh, that sort of crosses over. But it also comes down there to, I think, also some tech stuff. Um you know, like it comes down to with road, there is tech involved, but I feel like with gravel, it's more so important because you don't have the support cars there. You don't have the support of, um, you know, guys on the side of the road with, with, with wheels or whatever else. So it comes down to also individual choice. You really have to know your own tech. You yeah. have to be intimately familiar with, you should, you'd, you'd be benefited to be intimately familiar with how your tires are set up how to remedy a puncture, what, how to triage a puncture quickly, uh, how to set your bike up such that I'm obsessive about kind of having everything ready at the ready for tire repair because time is money and nobody's mm. bringing you a wheel uh, and drafting you back on. So, you know, if you can avoid putting a plug in, great. If you have to put a plug in, do you need air? If you have, if you need air, is it going to hold or should you have just put a tube? I mean, I don't even carry tubes anymore. <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. A bunch of plugs and, you know, worst case, a, a little, yeah, we, yeah, I, I, a little patch with super glue to put on the inside and then reseal it. Yeah. So you, you, you can do that 
if you, for instance, have a hole that's too big in your tire and it can't be plugged, you'll put a patch in and still seal it up without any tube. Correct. Wow. And you can get the patch on with it, with all the sealant on the inside of the tire. Uh, well, I would clean it with a little alcohol right. swab. So you, you got, oh, you got a little alcohol swab it's with you. Wow. Cool. Yeah. There's, I mean... <laughs> Is this yeah. being done in, in a race English. or are you talking about just out on the road training now? Uh, I mean, at that point in a race... It's over. Well, it depends. You know, late in the race, maybe you could hold on to a top five, top three, maybe a win. Uh, it, it's all depends, right? These are long. So that's the other aspect of gravel. These are typically very long races. So mm. they're a war of attrition. Um, so tactically, it's interesting that it kind of changes your gauge of like what a dangerous move is and what is not a dangerous move. And, you know, power in numbers versus, you know, smaller groups getting up the road. And, you, you know, you have to kind of weigh in like, is do they have a chance a group of two early in a, on a 200 mile race mm. probably not probably mm. not it's probably wise to maybe at least wait till halfway through the race um to get anything moving um unless you're up the road well i don't know <laughs> depends <laughs> on the race depends on the day um yeah so it yeah it's a little bit different things are moving in a little more in slow motion than on the road you can uh yeah yeah, until you hit a spicy section, then it's absolute mayhem. <laughs> like yeah. rut, dual rutted, early and unbound. There's just they're changing the course. But traditionally, mile twenty five, there was this dual rutted section of about you know five to ten k that was just so gnarly, and that's where it's just blown to pieces. Car people crashing everywhere, just mayhem. Is it your so, tactic the same as say like I hit a cobblestone sector or an important sector? I hit the front, you know, sometimes you've got to just push wind to be safe. Is that your tactic in when you get to gravel? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Tac gravel, a lot of it's just, yeah, just like, you know, just similar to a classic cobble race would be disaster mitigation. Just mm. keeping your, you're not winning the race anywhere, but you could lose the race in hundreds of different places, mm. especially in gravel. I mean, you take a bad line and you end up just slamming into a rock, puncture, that's your day. Well, seeing as we're talking about adventure and off-road racing and gravel grinding, whatever you want to call it, as you guys know, I use restrap bags when I went on my Sweden adventure and also have continued to use them since then. More specifically, their adventure race range. Now, they actually reached out to me and said, hey, Mitch, how did those bags go on Sweden? Was there anything you think we could do to improve it? And you know, look, there's a couple of things. You always find something that when you're riding with different gear, oh, I wish that was just a bit longer or that bit happened like that or the zip was a bit like this. So you know what? I gave back a couple of bits of advice thinking, yeah, you know, what are they going to listen to me? They went away and they spoke to all of their ambassadors, people who use their gear day in, day out. They took on that advice and they've released a new adventure race range. All the gear that you use when you want to go fast out adventuring. But actually, I still use that stuff every day anyway. It's great stuff. I'm talking about a saddle bag. I'm talking about a top tube bag. I'm talking about a frame bag and also a bar bag. This stuff is spot on and they've gone away and they've tweaked it even more. So go across and check them out. Restrap.com. That's R-E-S-T-R-A-P.com and put in Pelo 10, P-E-L-O 10. 
to get yourself a little discount as well. Guys, go check them out because I am thrilled. I was already thrilled, but now they've gone and re-released it again. So I know you're going to be thrilled when you go and see it. Now, let's get back to the episode. Let's let's talk about the scene actually, because this is something that I'm understanding now. And we spoke a little bit about the the you know the sort of the domestic road scene, and then I can also speak about the the world tour sort of road scene. It's it's professional racing, and the thing that I've enjoyed the most about sort of stepping away from that world. Not to say I didn't love it at its time, but the thing I got tired with it is the scene that I'm in now. These gravel events. It's an inclusive scene. It's an awesome scene. I'm loving meeting all these different people. There's a small race at the front, but I'd say majority of the people are just there to com- to complete the event, have a hard day, do whatever they need to do. You get to the end and you could be having a beer with anyone. It could be the the guy who was racing at the front or it could be just someone who, you know, took twice as long. I'm loving that scene at the moment. It's such an inclusive scene. Tell me what you do or don't like about it and about the the ever sort of changing feel of it we spoke about um the world tour coming into some of these events is that affecting that scene or what's your feel about that no i think exactly what you described is what drew me to it originally Mm. i went to a couple of local gravel races in texas and these were not super competitive ones you know there are a couple of the same of us local cross racer road racer guys who showed up and yeah again had our little race at the front but you know, the, it, it wasn't our race. And that's what I, that's where I just kind of like, that's what clicked for me and kind of the light went off of like, this is a fantastic, this is a, this formula is going to grow and explode because it's just a, it's just a good experience. Mm. And not only for, you know, the people winning the race or competing for the win, but it's just good for everybody has a quality memorable valuable experience you know they get to race usually the same distance most Mm. people do the same distance as the pros uh and they get that sense of accomplishment um you know they can even compare it their time to the pros and makes it more kind of makes the what the pros are doing that much more like approachable and that's really what what sold me on it and how i like i was hired by red bull as a fixed gear racer and i pivoted it into kind of like, hey, look at this gravel thing. This is pretty cool. And then, you know, managed to kind of divert what I'm like, what I was to to them, transitioned, uh, pivoted into into being a gravel racer. Um, just as this scene was sure enough blowing up because people go to gravel races and they have good experiences. Like, yeah. like I was talking about the my vibe at, re- at road races, you know, some people are just really into that competitive. That's kind of what, they thrive on is that just kind of antagonism, but it's not a great business model and it failed. I mean, I think it's fair to say it, it, it never took, it definitely never excelled in the U S mm. and it pretty much failed with the exception of a few races that are just good events. Um, but just that, you know, it's a much, people have, are more likely to have a good time at a gravel race because it's just set up that way. Yeah, it's just inclusive to all the different levels, you know. Like you said, you go to a a road event, unless you're sort of in that top tier who's invested so much time in training and and money to be, you know, equipment-wise, to be at the very top, the rest are just sort of viewing it. Um, But the fact that you can just pick up a gravel bike or have whatever level and be in the same event as as you, um, I think that's quite quite a unique sort of feel. It is, I guess, that that grand fondo sort of feel, but with a bit more spice involved yeah 
I ran into this guy, I think at Mid-South, I forget his name, but he was, so when I, when I, I won the Unbound 2019 and I was crossing the finish line, I picked up my bike and there was this guy who was finishing his hundred miler and he like ducked under my, under my arm and like did a, like a little bike throw and like crossed the line right as I was crossing. And he's like, man, I'm so sorry. I, I ruined your finish line photo. And I was like, just, I mean, honestly, it's like, no, not really. Like I was in your finished photo. It's not like, that's the whole point is it's all, the fair is fair, man. I mean, he yeah. paid his money. God, like he wasn't, he doesn't have to like bow down to me because I put more time in on the bike. It's just not how it works. That's not real. That's kind of his invention. Speaking of time on the bike, um, because it is getting a little bit more, um, I guess, serious or maybe it's always been like that for you. I don't know. You know, like I guess kilometers wise, um, I sort of would put in about 30,000 K in a year to be a pro on the road. Um, what sort of time and sort of mentality do you put into this? Um, you've got a, a big sort of backing in terms of, you know, sponsors. Um, like you said, you mentioned Red Bull, but also you, you know, you've got your, your bike brand, um, Alliance. You know, you've also, he's, he's checked Rafa, of course. You know, there's, there's people investing in you because they see this is an amazing scene and, you know, you, you're really projecting in, in this scene that we we're just talking about. How does that reflect then on how the way you train? Are you still able to keep um, that feeling going? Or are you feeling ever more, not pressured, it's not the right word, but this responsibility to, to train harder, to be fitter? What sort of what sort of case do you do? What's your feeling around training? Well, it's no doubt. <laughs> I've proven to myself the more I pedal my bike, the better I am at pedaling my bike in bike races. So, you know, I've never really had a coach. I've honestly just ridden my bike. You know, I ride hard when I feel like it, sprint up hills when I feel like I have some energy at the end of rides, you know, maybe not if I don't. I've just been kind of just riding by feel, pretty laissez-faire, and it's worked, right? Mm. But there's no doubt there's a correlation between volume and success and fitness and good sensations. Um, so, yeah, there's been a – you know, I, I had definitely – had a significant disruption with the the shutdown year, you know, and I really took a hard reset. I kind of called it early on that we weren't going to be, ra- I wasn't going to be racing anything that year. And sure enough, everything was canceled. So I really kind of, I kind of allowed myself to go down some rabbit holes of distraction. I started a business renovating travel trailers and off-road vehicles. And, uh, and yeah, so there's no doubt there's a bit of a like water skis, yeah. sensation i'm i'm yeah i i am uh i have been struggling a bit with uh, the volume because no doubt it's a needy it's it's a needy endeavor and the more you put in the more you get out so yeah it's do you, yeah it's do you feel that pressure like with with the guys like you spoke about stetner Lockie, housey whether it's those guys exactly but this you know this scene growing and your sort of legacy of um who you are and what you've done already Obviously, guys are coming in harder and, you know, oh, let's, let's try and – they put you up on the pedestal. You know, Colin Strickland, we've got, to, we've got to take him out. So there's this sort of underlying sort of pressure. Like, I'm actually going to have to train harder. But then is it like that's what I want to do? Or it's like oh, I don't know if this is really what I was doing here. You know, was I trying to make this into this sort of scene, you know, where I'm out doing 30,000K a year or whatever the hell it is? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Mm. Remember what I said about working smart? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Maybe it's time to look for the other wave break on the yeah, distance and paddle over to that one. Right. No, um, I mean it's healthy for the sport. It's I don't I'm not I you know I was thinking of making a decree that everybody needs to chill the hell out and we're only allowed to train what 15k a year. I don't know something reasonable so we can have reasonable exactly pursuits. Yeah, yeah, but it's not the way it is. That's not what the people want. The people want to see the fastest athletes. I don't know. I'm a little torn right now, man. Honestly, mm. I'm a little torn whether it's I'm cut out for it. Um, yeah, because you get to I, I felt it myself. I've, I've said to myself, I'm going to go to these events and just enjoy it. And the ego gets involved. You can't help it. You know, I'm trying to hang on longer than my body I've trained for. And ultimately, I put myself in this hole and I'll, I eventually get dropped. And people are like, yes, dropped in Mitch Docker. You know, you're like. Of course, like I, I did ten hours this week, you know, and that's sort of you my limit. More than me. Yeah. yeah, but that's bike racing. I mean, bike racing is a fitness test in almost all the disciplines. A um, mm. little less so in mountain biking, slightly, but those guys are still those guys are still fitter than me right now. I got smoked at Sea Otter Classic. That's what happened. Let's be honest. I, I mean, I, I ended up top twenty in the first. Like I was slated. I had a great start, and I was like positioned to just. There's a lot of climbing. I was ready to just motor, and I just didn't have the legs. Was it you know? was it just the legs, or tech, how are you technically on mountain biking? I'm pretty I'm pretty okay unless I unless something bad <laughs> happens. <laughs> uh, I'm decent, and I should be able. I had the oper- I had plenty of room to motor, and I just wasn't. Um, I think the other guys that I was racing in the Lifetime Grand Prix, I'm like pretty decent. Again, yeah. not nowhere near the pure mountain bike pros, of course, but. As far as, as far as all the other gravel racers, I'm on par, you know, I put my time in on the mountain bike. So, but yeah, man. So yeah. And that's, that's where I'm just like, well, I need to do another 10 hours a week. At least I think last year I averaged 10 hours a week on the bike. Mm, I'm liking that. And there's something really new for me. 10 hours a week before now was really a recovery week considered yeah. a week off. And now 10 hours a week, when you get a chance, you're squeezing in. You got to squeeze in a couple of big rides there, you know, yeah. three, three hour ride, four hour ride. And it's not adequate. I mean, I was so, I could not believe I got fifth at Unbound yes, last year with 10 hours a week. I was so proud of that, <laughs> uh, honestly, but it's not, it's not enough. And that's the, that's the, that's the question. But what's your feel towards that? Do you want to commit more than 10 hours a week? Or is it going to be something that you're going to be pushing against your will? Like, oh, I've got well, to do I it. Do, it's a good question. I do want to do it. You have to set your life up for it, though. Yeah. And recently, I've been setting my life up with a lot of distractions. I play music in a band. I have a, I purchased an automotive shop that I've been renovating. And I have, I have more than 10 diesel engines stripped, like ready for install wow. in trucks. I, it's insane. I have nine Spartan trailers. I sold my first Spartan trailer this last January to John C. Riley from that LA Lakers show. Wow. Uh, drove to Austin and bought my first unit. So I have oh, Wait, wait. Tell me, tell me about the Spartan Trailers. I did want to talk about it, but now we're going there now. Tell us about that. This is yeah. something that you're a really handy guy. You're good with your hands. You love building cars, doing your own bike mechanics, and the Spartan Trailers. I've just seen a video about them. I was like, oh, I wouldn't mind one of those. Tell us about this yeah. little endeavor. I just got obsessed with this... Um, this particular type, it's similar to an Airstream, but a lot more livable, more squared off interior, um, more interior space. And they're just, I was thinking in 2018, like, wow, if I had one of these, I could get out of Austin, get out of Texas in the summer and really like, really live the bike racer life. It would be heaven. I could just 
I wouldn't be couch surfing. I could have my own home mm. on the road. So great. Fast forward. I'm working on this thing. 2020 happens. You know, racing is shut down. The whole country is kind of on lockdown. So I just worked on my Spartan trailer um, mm. and kind of started buying more <laughs> and hoarding them <laughs> and just starting to scheme like, wow, I think this could be a viable business. And you know, then 2021 came, racing's back on. I took it to Unbound. It was fantastic. I had like home HQ, service course, kitchen, my own bed. It was great. And then, yeah, then I realized I had nine of them. I would just obsessively, I would tow them home from every race I went to last year. Now I have nine shells, 10, I don't know. Um, have you got a yeah, big property? Where do you keep all this stuff? I have a shop. Oh, right. Near Austin. I bought a shop on half an acre of land. Right. So, it's just packed full now of these trailers. Yeah. And it's, I love, I just love the scale. I love the antique hunting. I love the interior design. I love the build out. I love the challenge of fitting all the utilities in. And then at the end, you have this beautiful living space mm. and it's really fulfilling. And it's also a viable business plan. And it, you know, the original plan was to get to, to embrace cycling and now i'm finding myself like pulled away from cycling by this this kind of you know it's in the development phases so it needs a lot of attention right now mm. and so that comes that comes back to that 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 ebb and flow that pull between you know wanting to be on the bike something i'm experiencing now i know i want to do a bit more but then i also have said to myself i want to be retired you know so this like the whole time i'm fighting it like whenever you get your ass kicked at a gravel race or something i'm like oh i just got to commit more time and i'll be up yeah. there but then i'm like get back home and i'm like i don't want to do any more than i'm doing Why? i'm sort of happy doing a couple of hours and and enjoying it yeah. i don't want to get to that point where i'm heading out in a five-hour ride sort of getting back to what i was doing last year um tell me about 2019 you were the winner of um, Dirty Cans, or what it was called back then. And, you know, something special sort of happened. My old team, EF, reached out to you and sort of put on the table, you know, hey, we might want you to come across and ride World Tour. Um, to yeah. anyone sort of in your position, that's sort of, I can imagine, it could be wrong, sort of music to your ears. You're like, whoa, here I go. I get to go to the big leagues. But now after this conversation and knowing all this stuff, Really, is that something that you wanted to do? And tell us a little bit about that story, how it ha didn't actually go forward. Is, is this true? Yes, that is all accurate. Um, yeah, and I, I think it would have been a terrible fit for me. I think mm. I would have been a, a terrible employee. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, there's no way you, I could have gotten my shit together in one season. And as it all ended up, as it all turned out, I would have been signed on for 2020 the shutdown mm. year with the compressed season that would have been a nightmare yeah nightmare i mean an absolute night it would be hard enough with a one-year contract and stressful enough but that would have been i probably wouldn't even gotten to race mm. and that's you the know, thing i, I mean, think a lot of people underestimate that i'm not sort of trying to talk badly of the pro life but it is it is viewed with sort of you know What's the right word? Rainbow eyes, you know, where you're looking rose through glass, rose, yeah, rose, rose glasses, glasses. You know, it's just like, oh, that's just the dream. But at the end of the day, you have to be committed to like any professional sport. It's your life. And the younger you are, the more appealing it, or the more realistic it. The more you're, I think, you're able to make the sacrifices. Hmm. As you become an older, older man, older gentleman, it's just, it's less. It, it's harder to fit that in. 
to your yeah. life goals, life plan. Yeah. So, I mean, it was an honor, but I, I think I, of course, I made the right choice for me and I'm, yeah. Yeah. Is, is it something now that you look at, you know, with Paris Roubaix just happening just, you know, this weekend, do you still look at it and think, wow, I would have loved to have, you know, sort of had, had that chance? You know, in, I would have loved to have that chance maybe eight years earlier when I was a lot mm. hungrier. And, and then I just looked at the, the 10 or 12 crashes leading up mm. to it. You got to like, yeah, you're just like charging this line of fire and you hope that you don't get hit. Yeah. Good luck. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing if you end up in the final ten group of ten. But yeah, you, I mean, I can only imagine how hard that is. How how many things you have to dodge? How many claymores are? I yeah, think just you, the speed, us, man. I don't yeah. know. I have no the idea. Sp- you tell me. Well, I think just the speed this year was underestimated. When it, you know, whether you're aware of what happened in the race or not, you know, the race split in the very first sort of fifty k. And just looking on TV, you think, oh, yeah, these guys sort of, that's cool, it's split. But that is already three hours of intense racing before you even hit the first sector. And it gets completely underestimated. Um, and when you watch the last 50K or whatever, when people tune in, or well, the last 100 at Arenberg, oh, cool, let's watch the race. So much has happened before that. Like you said, the crashes, the effort in the crosswinds. If you happen to be in that front, it's already almost like successful day if you're in the front group at the end of Arenberg. So... Um, I don't, I cannot imagine. I mean, yeah, it was, a, it was a, in the end, it was like a numbers game to me. And it's like, yeah, I could put my, all my money on, you know, red 11 and that's one in a hundred chances of having a good, a good outing. But honestly, shit. Yeah. Good luck, sir. Good Tell luck. Me. I think I, I had <laughs> for sure, I had a sure thing or I had this like shoot the moon long shot of glory that could also just make myself look ridiculous and like, what a fool. He thought he could come in and like somebody told him that he'd be good at this and he just took it to, it went to his head. Like, no, I know, mm. I, I think I know, I know this, I'm, I know, I know this, this trick. It's, it's quite, it's quite a sort of mature sort of outlook because you can get blinded by that. Um, and I'm not saying that you wouldn't have gone well at all. I, I mean, <laughs> that you wouldn't have not gone well at all. Like I think you would have been really good, but I think it just takes time. And just listening to what you speak and understanding you a little bit, you're you're more than just the bike. And ultimately, when you're a younger guy, that's all you sort of need is the bike. But as you grow older, these projects you've got on, um, these ideas, the time that you like to spend not training as well, which makes you a whole rounded person, um, that's sort of, like, from what I understand, one of your best sort of assets. So um, let's talk about what's coming up lifetime grand prix and you you did speak about the first event at the sea otter the mountain bike tell me about what do you think about this six you know this six rider invitational series i don't know too much about it so it's sorry not six riders six event 60 riders invitational is this exciting you this season um because it's more or less all the races you've done yeah you, you never done leadville have you or have you I have I have not done that. I've always shied away from these just extremely cl- <laughs> high altitude. I don't live in the mountains. A lot of these guys just live there and, you know, aren't as hungry. <laughs> so they're, you know, it's hard to raise Alex and Lachlan up mountains. They're just, they do it. That's what they do every day. And I live on the flatlands. So I do well in the wind. I'll race them in the wind. Mm. I'll race those guys in the wind any day, but tables turn. So yeah, I've never done Leadville. That's one I haven't done. And I haven't done the Cheka Chekamonga mountain bike race. Hmm. You sound you sound like a, a great great sort of fit for me. That's exactly my comments. Like 
Bring the wind on, baby. Let's 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 play. Once it starts to get to the crosswinds, I'm like, finally. You know, I'm not saying I yeah. love that stuff, but at least I feel comfortable in it. Yeah, that's where you're from, though. We're all good at what we do, right? You yeah. grew up in the winds. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so no surprise. Tell me, and lastly, tell me a little bit about the teams that you're setting your team you're setting up around yourself. Um, you know, I'm actually holding an intelligentsia mug right here. Um, I love this coffee, and Doug Zeal, um, I actually didn't know that he was the founder of Intelligentsia. Um, when I went across to um, the US, would have been 10 years ago, I, I sourced them out. Um, I was like, I've got to get there. This was the the famous um, sort of pioneer of this sort, sort of third wave of coffee, you know, specialty coffee that we, you know, Melbourne is a real coffee sort of place. But we were, we were sort of following in the footsteps of, you know, the US who kicked it off and more specifically Intelligentsia. Tell me a little bit about Doug Zeal and how you guys sort of got together and what you're doing and the history there. Oh, that, that's so cool. He literally texted me three minutes before we got on this, uh, on this call. I hadn't, I hadn't spoken with him in a few weeks and he just texted me. Um, he's just like one of the most inspirational, you know, friends of mine. Um mm. In terms of just like, I didn't even know. I'm not a. I'm not super familiar with coffee world, and then I just hear this from you know that like mention of his his like legend <laughs> from mm. you and from other coffee people. I just know him as like one of my good buddies who's um, just incredibly savvy serial entrepreneur and just compelled by design and art and cycling and merging all of these like aspects of culture together in ways not like not even to enrich himself because a lot of his projects are like they're just compulsive it's just like he's he's drawn to just create cool concepts and do them you know yeah. and most of them work out lucky for him but uh <laughs> he just does he's just like compelled to do cool shit and uh yeah he's inspirational in that in that sense i've met him um he was sponsoring daniel holloway in 2016 when I was on specialized LA LA. Um, mm-hmm. So I approached him about it. Uh, I was really focusing on Red Hook in 2017 when I started my own program and he was interested. He's like, sure, Red Hook. He was, you know, he saw things the way I did. He's like, Red Hook, you know, for a one or two person team, that's a great investment. You guys would get a lot of visibility and it's a cutting edge, like hip, like, you know, it's, it's, a, mm. it's a hot spot to it's a good place to put your brand. So he was a intelligentsia was the title sponsor 2017. And then we kind of transitioned to the meteor when he opened this, his own, his own personal kind of cafe, coffee shop, bike shop, uh, fusion, uh, business. Where's that in Texas? It's in Texas and in Bentonville, Arkansas. And also in, uh, in, well, yeah, te- Austin and Bentonville for now. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, when Doug moved to Austin, he actually lived in my my master bedroom for a year. <laughs> As he built like his really nice house, it just goes to show he's like salt of the earth, just like really easygoing, you know. Yeah, I cannot speak highly enough of him in terms of his passion for the sport of cycling and just cool, like the the good parts of life. Genuinely, just good good human. And what what was it like for you then, sort of? I guess setting up this sort of squad is something I spoke to Alec about. Um, you know, there's there's sort of management of you know people, sort of logistics, sort of management as well. Um, you know, is this something that you always envision you'd like to do, having your own little squad, or just sort of 
happened and you just sort of had to step up to the plate? It was kind of a, a process. Um, also just observing why and how domestic road racing was failing. It was these, these structures were mm. road required these structures that were unsustainable in terms of the support structures. You need mechanics, you need all the, you need a team car, you need three bikes per rider, just ridiculous like requirements. Like why? Well, I don't know. This is how we, you have to have a time yeah. trial bike. Yeah. Why yeah. do you have to, I don't know they do that in Europe. <laughs> I don't know. So just looking at ways of like, okay, so why do these teams fold? So, predictably well because they can't the fund it's charity and then the funding runs out and then they evaporate you know because there's too many too many cooks in the kitchen too many people on the payroll and so i was like well the only way to make this really sustainable for me is to run a lean really lean operation so at first i had three teammates i was two teammates i was taking to the red hook races and then eventually just had one female teammate and then, you know, to have some like some uh, some kind of parody in the men's and women's races. And then eventually just like, well, you know, I just need to managing people is, mm. is, is it's, it's its own challenge. And uh, yeah, it's hard. So I just ultimately was just like, you know what I can I don't I like wrenching on bikes. So I'm just going to run a program of just me and, yeah, right. uh, and make it sustainable and you know, see if that works for sponsors and it's, it's worked out thus far. And when it comes to sponsors, like this world that you're in now, it is a, it is a something that I'm understanding too, is, is working with my own individual sponsors. Um, as a pro, you, you underestimate how much is done when you just roll under that umbrella. Um, cool. You know, like we're all there, you're part of this squad and you could just appeal to the team and the team pushes out all those sponsors. But when you're dealing with individual sponsors too, it's it's managing that too um, because at the end of the day, it, it's a beautiful scene that you're in to to promote this. And we're sort of just on the the promoting side of it. How's it how's it been working with this and understanding this role that you have? Yeah, that's a whole nother um, time. I mean, time time suck and time obligation really is, is managing your, it's mostly in the off season and getting your, your, your kind of contracts, partnerships kind of worked out and getting these agreements drafted. Um, but yeah, you are, you are, you are the team, you are the publicist, you are the marketing, social media, you are, which is good and bad. It's good that you can be completely, you know, kind of honest and, you know, kind of like unprocessed, uh, it hasn't been kind of filtered, unfiltered, if you will. Um, mm. Some sponsors like that, some don't. But when it comes to, you know, the messaging and forming these relationships, many of these partners like Envy, I just approached early in Envy, I approached in 2017. And just, I just picked the companies that I really believed were like my cool. favorite gear. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you know, a company like Envy, they just get, uh, started by just giving me w- rim sets, you know, and I built them up to fill wood rims and was beyond stoked because these wheels are so nice. And, you know, and then that evolved into actual support, financial support for the, the program. And yeah, so like, you know, and the way I see it, the longer, you know, the longer your tenure is with a given sponsor, the more powerful the messaging is. Um, mm. So yeah, I've really tried to stick to that ethos of just 
don't don't jumble up sponsors. Don't don't chase you know the dollar every year to try to get an extra five thousand dollars yeah. from another shoe sponsor. You know, <laughs> to build a bigger war chest. It's like you it, longevity is key. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, lastly, mate, what have you learned in these last ten years, um, more or less? Once you sort of stepped away from you know environmental conservation or environmental studies or what you were doing there and suddenly stepped into this world of bikes there's a lot there because it's happened fast in my sort of opinion you've sort of lived three sort of careers there um what have you sort of step away and you can you can learn from all this that's a great question mitch that's (laughs) a really great question uh really i I guess if i had encapsulate or condense it to one thing it would just be the yeah the 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 people you meet and just kind mm. of your, the impression you leave with people is like every single one, you know, not, not, you know, conducting yourself with absolute decency all the time. It, it could very well come, come back at you and it's just not worth it. You know, it, it is so important just to be a, I mean, they always, it's all, it's like obvious, right? Be a good role model, but like, you know, the eyes are on you when you're a professional athlete. Um, mm. It's so important. You never know where opportunity will, will come in the future. So yeah, just be be excited, be be grateful for what we get to do, and don't take yourself too seriously. That's so mm. important. Do not take yourself too seriously because we're all going to be on the ten hour a week plan one day. <laughs> I do love that because it, it is it is it it is advice for all walks of life, not just cycling, but more so important, like you said, because you are in the spotlight more than just you know the normal Joe Blow. But I think it's great advice that anyone can take on board for anything, you know. So. Mate, it's been great having you on the pod today. Um, thanks for the time. Thanks for the opportunity to talk you and the people about my passion for bicycles, man. That's I appreciate it so much. Well, I hope we can cross paths. I'm looking forward to uh, following your wheel in the crosswinds and maybe uh, trying to put you in the in the gutter a little bit, seeing you know, letting you taste it a little bit. Oh boy, I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll see you in twelve hours a week. Well, there you go. What did you think? Colin Strickland, or Stricko as I like to call him, he is a great guy, a really great guy, and you can see he has a completely different view on cycling than most professionals, and it works. It's really worked in his scene. We didn't barely scratch the surface because he has a whole lot of other interests that we touched on. He's mechanicing his own bikes. He's building cars, as he said, and he's also building these trailers. He really is a great guy. I did enjoy that episode with him. I want to say thanks to Rafa for making these episodes come alive this year. Of course, Lara behind the scenes and Will Jones for putting these episodes together. Next week, of course, I'll have a talking luft with Colin Strickland. So guys, until then, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.